We're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 18, 1 through 18. Should be on the screen behind me soon. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, after him, nor among those who went before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Suppose with me for a moment. Suppose there's a mother of three children. Children are young teenagers. On this particular Saturday, dad's gone off on a men's retreat with the church. Now mom has a problem that she's trying hard not to overthink, but it is beginning to drive her nuts. The kids won't clean their rooms. Now, for several consecutive Saturdays, she's tried different approaches to try to get this task accomplished. You know, she's tried being the cool mom. It's like, hey, you know, if you clean your rooms, then uh, you can have all your friends come over. Oh, we'll have so much fun. It'll be great, but you got to clean your rooms first. Didn't work so well. She tried to be pretty oblique about it. Like, you know, it doesn't matter to me what your room looks like, but if it were clean, you know, I think you'd be happier. You'd get better grades at school. Sun shines a little bit brighter. That didn't work. She tried being the hardcore mom, the kind of mom that her, mom, that her mother was. Um, you know, kind of how my mother was too. It is worse than a pigsty in here. If this room doesn't get clean, nobody gets dinner. Well, that didn't work either. So she tried tying a clean room to everything being better in life. Nothing worked. Now the kids don't, op don't openly rebel, they don't argue, they just don't clean their rooms. So on this particular Saturday, as she's sitting there thinking about how she'd like to get her kids to clean their rooms, a thought comes to her mind. Maybe I just wasn't clear enough in my instruction. So she writes some instructions. And in breakfast, she gave a little speech. And it went something like this. Your rooms need to be clean. Now here's what I mean by that. Pick up everything that's on the floor that doesn't belong on the floor and put it away. Put the dirty clothes in the hamper, put the clean clothes where they belong. Dust your dressers, dust your desks, dust your nightstands, anything that collects dust, dust it. Vacuum the floors, make your beds. Now, these are your instructions for cleaning your rooms. 
I have a few things that I need to do. I'm leaving. I'll be back in a couple of hours. I expect this work to be done when I return. So she goes off and does what she needs to do. She comes back and finds her house is full of kids. Now, the kids are orderly. There's no damage being done. Um, they're actually organized in little groups. She walks in. They don't really seem to notice her very much at all. One of the groups is huddled around the computer. And what they're doing around the computer is they're emailing and tweeting uh, how, to clean your, how to clean your room instructions to people around the country. Um, some of that group is talking about getting posters made that say it's worse than a pigsty in here. Uh, but there's one kid who's off in a corner doing research on his own. He's trying to figure out exactly what it is that a pigsty is. Another one of our kids has a group in the kitchen. And they're having a, a pretty spirited discussion, actually, about the importance of memorizing the instructions in the order given. Um, she hears, overhears a side discussion about what, what if there's nothing on the floor that doesn't belong there? And she thinks like that would ever happen in a teenager's room. But, but if there isn't, should they put something on the floor first so they can pick it up and put it away? Because then that keeps the instructions in order, you see. The third child has a different group that's involved in something of a debate. And the debate goes something like this. Um, her daughter's position is that, hey, my mother was born in 1968, and dust was the only cleaning product that was available when she was a young girl. And the only rags that they had available to them at the time were holy shirts. And we know because Mom has told us this dozens of times. Now, that and that alone is what dusting means. That's her daughter's position. The loud kid from down the street is saying, no, 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 no. You know what? Things have changed since 1968. Um, methodologies have changed. Technology's changed. The Swiffer is the only way to go here. It, there's less work involved. There's no environmentally difficult chemicals to deal with. Certainly will dust, but with a Swiffer, that'll work. Other kids having conversations that, you know, they're trying to get to the hidden meaning of of some of the statements she made, like, when I return, or I expect this done. What do those phrases really mean? There's one kid who's applying numbers to each of the letters, and he's adding and subtracting and dividing. He's trying to find the hidden meaning in the word that, uh, that the mother left behind. Well, our make-believe mom here just doesn't know what to think. There's a veritable cleaning convention going on in her house and she can't wait. She cannot wait to see the results. Today is the day that these rooms are finally going to be clean. I can just feel it. So she runs up the stairs, opens the first bedroom door to find. Nothing has changed since she left. The rooms aren't clean. They haven't been touched. If anything, they're worse. So her kids are downstairs enthusiastically talking about the importance of a clean room and the methodologies involved in a clean room, but they're not interested at all in cleaning their rooms. Okay, so that's a bit of a contrived story, I guess, right? Probably you see the parallel already. Isn't that what the evangelical church in this country is doing right now a lot of the time? We study God's Word, which is, of course, the Bible. Um, we memorize it, 
we discuss it, we debate it, we read books that were written about what the Word of God has to say. In the past, maybe we've thought about what versions are acceptable to use. Um, we discuss the applicability. You know, how, how does the Old Testament, um, how does that impact the lives that we live? Are we under law still? Well, no, clearly we're under grace, so there's a different perspective to be had there. But So we do all these things with the Bible that is the Word of God, our written instruction. But do we actually follow it? Do we do what God has us, would have us to do? Do we follow the instruction that he gave us? That's what it comes down to. Or do we follow the ritual, the tradition, that have evolved and sprung up from the word of God over the centuries? Is a ritual, is it not an idol all by itself? When Hezekiah came to power, um, his situation, the situation in Judah was fairly grim. The people were worshiping, or we want to put that in modern parlance, they were going to church. But exactly what were they worshiping? Well, the nation of Israel, the entire nation, had started out at some point worshiping the one God, the true God. Right? We, we can read that historically in scripture. That God, of course, was the God of Moses, God of Abraham, the God of David. As the years went by, though, they began to add some elements to it. They added, they added the Asherah. And you might be saying, what's an Asherah? Well, Asherah, in its simplest form, is the queen of heaven. Now, the pagans that they allowed to live with them um, were pretty open to queen of heaven type worship, so the people in Judah were pretty aware of it, and as years went by, um, they didn't resist too much when, when the Queen of Heaven got added to their worship. And it kind of made sense, right? Because if you've got a God the Father, but you also need a God the Mother, I mean, come on, it kind of fits. So the Asher was added. Also over time, they began to worship the serpent that Moses had built it under God's command. Um, that particular you know, piece of hardware, if you will, was, was greatly used of God some 700 years before. It was quite the symbol of the power of God. And so as such, it was, it was worthwhile certainly to keep around, but, but when the worship changed from being of the God of the pole to worshiping the pole itself, well, it was time to make the change. In not terribly interesting terms, the nation Israel started out, obviously, as a theocracy. It developed into a theocratic monarchy. And about the time that Hezekiah came along, it was an unguided monarchy. And I think if we look at that ancient narrative just a little bit, we can, well, maybe see that he did something in the way of revival, and maybe we can learn a few things about how to make revival happen here. He saw that um, the nation needed to be restored 
to a nation that truly worshiped the one true God. So he saw the problem, which is to say he was able to identify where Judah was at the time. He also had a target in mind of where he wanted Judah to be. And then his, his work was simply to, to close that gap. He could see that Judah needed revival. Um, by the first actions that he took, he used his actions to show that he was pretty serious about the fact that if we're going to accomplish revival here, some things have to change. So that's when he set about breaking the, uh, the brazen serpent, cutting down the, the Asherah, the other idols that were built in the high places. Is that where we, as a nation, are today? Or perhaps not even as a nation, but as individual bodies of believers? Because we have to understand that God in the Old Testament dealt with nations. Uh, with the coming of Christ, he began to deal primarily with individuals, not with nations. So we could, I suppose, debate how much of a Christian nation our nation used to be, but I really, I think that has no real value. I would rather look at the body of believers, not just this body, but certainly this body, but the rest of the bodies, or the, the proper plural here. There are many bodies of believers that are gathered this morning, this Sunday morning, just as we are to worship the God of the Bible. Um, and my question is, do we have idols? Well, my answer is I think that we do. And I'm going to define idols for purposes of this morning as anything that we insist on for proper worship. Any element that we believe is necessary for proper worship that we don't find in scripture I've experienced a handful of these extra-biblical requirements in worship over the past summer, over the summer past and, and recently. I can tell you that there are churches within e easy driving distance of here that if you walked in there with anything other than the authorized version, you know, the King James Bible, they really don't want you there. They believe that you are of the devil. There are most churches in the area that assume that for real worship, for honest to God, if you will, worship, we need to be singing out of the, the little red hymnals that we have here. And only to have that be accompanied by an organ. Although, in a pinch, a piano may work, but that's it. We got the organ, the piano, and the hymnal, that's it, we have to have it. There are churches where, if you're foolish enough to ask why the Lord's Prayer needs to be recited at each and every service, they let you know in short order that you just don't get it. Um, there are some churches here where the, the, the very order of service is sacred. And as bizarre as that sounds, um, walk into one of those churches and try to change it. They'll let you know just how sacred it is. None of the requirements here that sound maybe pretty trivial to some of us None of them are found in scripture. Right? These are inventions of man. So if you're holding on to these inventions of man as a requirement for worship, you're putting those inventions of man on par 
with the God of the Bible. Um, that people is idolatry. Maybe it would be worthwhile to look into our own hearts here as a collective body and see if we have any elements that, just like we're present in Hezekiah's time, need to be done away with if we're actually going to experience what God would have us experience. So if we have idols, we get rid of the, the idols, I've already defined the idols, if we define getting rid of the idols as revival, what would that look like here? I'd like to give you some possibilities of what that might look like. In fact, I'd like to give you six possibilities. These are the attributes of a church in revival. A church in revival is committed to building each other up. That's the first one. Can you imagine if some generic church had a small core group of leaders that emphasized encouragement? They simply wanted to, to build each other up, not artificially, but in a very real way. You know, what if five people began writing letters or just little notes of encouragement to say, I appreciate you and here's why? Would that impact the morale of our generic church or maybe even our real church? Paul gives us the instruction to make building up of each other um, a goal. Um, he wants us to become like Barnabas. <clears throat> the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. And wouldn't that be a wonderful thing, actually, to have written on your tombstone? He was an encourager, or she was an encourager. Um, in the modern church, I don't know if there's much more that would be of, uh, of higher honor than that. As I think we all know who are sitting here, life can be tough. Uh, there's an awful lot of discouragement in life. If we could develop an army of encouragers, I think they'd go a long way towards revival. The second attribute is that the church recognizes the value of every person. Uh, the second part of Romans 14, 15 says that uh, it reads, do not, be, do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. The people in a church sometimes can be a little bit obnoxious or perhaps they can be immature. Um, sometimes they can be disagreeable. But Christ died for everybody. We must never lose sight of that. Um, so I would encourage you to, um, the next time somebody is actually pushing you over the edge, just remember that very fact. Christ died for them too. Um, do I have a right to hurt people that Christ died for? I don't think I do. I don't think any of us do. The third attribute is of the church in revival is that the church stays focused on what's really important. Romans 14, 16 reads, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, 
but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What Paul's, one of the many things actually that Paul is telling us with that scripture and those that surround it is that um, Christianity is not external, it's internal. By focusing on the things that are internal, we discover the things that are eternally important. And if we understand that the glory of God happens internally, that helps us to put up with quirks or faults or other issues that, that we as brothers and sisters in Christ always seem pretty intent on presenting. In 1917, yeah, nobody here remembers that, I guess. In 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution happened in Russia. Um, they had a pretty strong church in old Russia. What was going on during this Bolshevik Revolution was that the priests were having a, a pretty significant debate about the length of the tassel on a priest's robe. So that's what they were focused on while the rest of the country was in revolution. Um, I have seen churches, uh, and this is the most amazing story, one that I actually witnessed myself, was a church split that occurred with when a very healthy church, about 250 members in the southern tier, um, decided that they needed new carpeting. Now, one of the strong women in the church had a daughter who was getting married real soon. And knowing the colors that the girl was going to have in her bridal party, she wanted the color of the carpet to enhance the experience that the wedding was going to be. So she used all the weight she had behind her to get, to get the church to approve. I don't even know what the name of the color is, but it's kind of somewhere between pink and purple. That was the new carpeting for the church. And I guess it looked great in the wedding photos, but um, it actually caused a church split. So at the time I visited that church, there were some 50 people left. Churches typically do split or have big issues, not over the important things, but about trivial matters like that. Um, We've got to keep that in mind. We never, we never need to, be, to allow ourselves to be sidetracked by trivial issues. The fourth attribute of a, of a church in revival is that um, the stronger church members limit their liberty. Romans 14.20 says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Now that reference, of course, goes back to the new Jewish believers who still were of the opinion that pork was unclean and um, just weren't aware, apparently, that that prohibition against pork had been pulled. Um, and that's what he's getting at. Everything is clean. You can eat whatever you want. But if you eat what you want, and that causes another believer to stumble, then don't eat what you want. You know, your liberty is important, but the the body is more important. Um, yeah, there are more 
other illustrations would be alcohol, I suppose. Um, there are so many. You have liberty and you're free to exercise it, but if in exercising the liberty to do the thing that you think that you're able to do without prohibition, if that causes somebody else to fall away, don't do it. The fifth attribute of a church in revival is that the church does not insist that everyone agree. Um, if we wanted to be a church in revival, we would have to make absolutely certain that disputable issues are not a test of fellowship. Um, and I've been in churches like that where it's, you have to believe what I believe, pretty much you have to speak the way I speak, you have to think the way I think, or else you're simply not welcome here. Um, Romans 14.22 says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Um, we had an election this past week. Probably most of you are aware of that. Um, I heard some pretty strong Christians make the, uh, the statement that they just cannot understand how anybody who calls himself a Christian could be registered, be anything other than a registered Republican. If you examine scripture, you won't find Republican, Democrat, Independent, Socialist, whatever the other parties are. You simply won't find it there. And I know Ivan went into some depth in his Sunday school class in the preceding weeks to talk about church's responsibility in an election year, so we won't, we won't go there. But, but that is an illustration of a disputable issue that could be forced on somebody else that could really cause some division in the church. So don't, don't do that. Um, as a quick side note though, we do have to keep in mind that there are legalists out there, perhaps some among us, who aren't gonna be happy with you whatever you say. Um, that becomes actually their problem and not ours. Um, in Romans 12:18, Paul says, if possible, so far, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So there are going to be people that you're not going to be able to get along with, but, but if you want to be a church in revival, you really do have to try. The final attribute, I think, of a church that's in revival is that um, the church accepts one another as they are. In Romans 15, 7, Paul says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, how is it that Christ has accepted us? Unconditionally. No judgment. Not one person has ever been accepted into the kingdom of heaven based on their own performance. It's all about Christ. Now, Paul does tell us in, um, in verse 13 that there are four, mar four earmarks of a unified church. Uh, those would be joy, peace, hope, and power. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to belong to a church that had signs of joy, peace, hope, and power every time you went there? I think it'd be great. 
No church is ever going to be healthy. Let me rephrase that. No church is ever going to be perfect. The best we can ever hope for is healthy. I think Chictawaga is currently a healthy church. Um, but I think we all know that Chictawaga is by no stretch of the imagination a perfect church. Um, if we consider what needs to be considered to be a church in revival, we, can, we actually can grow in joy and peace and hope and power. Let's pray. Only Father, I would ask that you, you teach us to recognize the value of every individual. I'd ask that you teach us to f- keep our focus on what's really important. Lord, please help us to willingly limit our liberty based on love for others. Help us to refrain from forcing our opinions on each other, especially in areas that aren't clearly stated or talked about in your word. Help us to live by faith. Help us, like Christ, to be interested in doing what's good for others and not what's always best for us. In Jesus' name, amen.